Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. Markets shrug off higher consumer prices. The economy is in the process of rebounding. Will the Federal Reserve have its own digital currency? The financial stories that shape our world. Many people think the yields are just going to keep marching up. We have more spending coming out of Congress. One of the big questions I think on investors' minds, inflation. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Wells Fargo CEO, Charlie Sharp. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston. From Bloomberg Radio. Strong earnings trump fears that the variant will slow down the recovery. And so we continue on our upward path. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. And that near panic attack from the first part of the week, along with the quick midweek recovery, were reflected in equity markets, where the S&P on Monday dropped the most in two months, only to recover to reach for new highs, ending the week over 4,400, and the Nasdaq reaching toward 15,000, while the flight to safety early in the week led to the 10-year yield treasury yield dropping below 115 basis points, and then climbing back to end the week a bit higher, actually, than it was back on Monday. Today, us through the drama of the week, we welcome now Rupal Bansali. She's Aerial Investments Chief Investment Officer of International and Global Equities and author of Non-Conventional Investing, Being Right When Everyone Else Is Wrong. And my colleague, Gina Martin-Adams, she's Chief Equity Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. So welcome to both of you. Gina, let me start with you. Explain to me what happened this week, because it was pretty dramatic. It was a relatively volatile week, particularly after, you know, six months of pretty much continuous gains in the equity market to have a little bit of volatility uh, felt a bit uncomfortable for many investors. But certainly what we did see, I think you accurately captured, David, is the market gyrating around the Delta variant as well as inflation expectations, maybe a little bit of worries carryover from last week, which was more about global central banks, earnings playing a part of the story, but when we when we really dig into the details, we actually find that companies that reported earnings over the course of the last week have not received derived any benefit from those reports. So certainly, we are in the midst of a lot of uh, mayhem. I would say in the market where investors seem to have kind of lost their footing. I think it's a continuation, frankly, of what's been happening since May, when inflation expectations peaked, when we started to price in peak growth coming over the summer. 
we lost a lot of leadership on the index, and that really took hold over the course of the last couple of weeks with a lot of on-again, off-again trading. So, Rupal, uh, you wrote the book, Non-Conventional Investing. Explain the non-conventional approach to what's going on right now, because the, the conventional wisdom, I think, is we thought we were all going to rush back in, a lot of fears about inflation. Now, I think we're not quite as sure. But what's the non-conventional take on what's happening? Uh, David, thank you for that. And just to correct you, it's non-consensus mm. investing. Uh, and I'm known to be a contrarian. So here's, I think, a couple of things to note. One is that equity markets, uh, I think, are paying more attention to the credit market, and rightly so, uh, because the credit markets tend to be much more prescient about you know, future economic outlook, which ultimately then drives profit outlook for the equities. Uh, and the big dichotomy that's occurred in the last couple of weeks uh, in the interest rate environment where the 10-year bond rate has been correcting against all expectations and against all punditry views, which I'm going to call, you know, are the consensus views that interest rates would rise, they actually did the opposite. They fell. And frankly, inflation has not been higher uh, than the statistics have reported. CPI was over 5%. So you have a record level of negative uh, real rates. And that's putting a bid onto equity markets, which is why every time you see any kind of pullback, they go right back up. And also, I think, you know, to Gina's point, it's also caused a rotation in the market. Uh, people were all gung-ho about value making a big comeback. That was the consensus reflation trade. Well, guess what? That's been put to paid with what the interest rates are telling us, that inflation is not likely to get out of control. And that also caused a rotation into growth stocks versus value stocks. So, Gina, let's come back to you on this. And I take the points, non-consensus. I beg your pardon on the non-conventional, non-consensus. But, but uh, how much of the equity valuation right now is just supported by the interest rates being so terribly low? I mean, we, a lot of people were saying we're going toward the t to the two level on the 10-year yield. And instead, we, as I said, dripped down below 115 basis points. I think we're about 126 now. Well, I think you have to think about equities relative to bonds in a longer-term scope. I mean, we got to the point back in May where the equity risk premium relative to bonds had fallen out of its fourth quintile really for the first time in more than a decade, which said to a lot of investors, hey, look, equities relative to bonds are no longer offering us quite as extreme value as they did. At the same time, inflation expectations started, started to turn over, and then the, the, the story was written from there. Right. By Monday's close, that equity risk premium relative to bonds had finally reached back into the fourth quintile, offering investors an opportunity to buy into a dip in the equity market for the first time in quite a while. And I think we did see that. Now, the question remains as to how much we should be paying for equities globally, how much we should be paying for U.S. equities relative to rest of world equities and the like. But I think that fundamental shift is important to note that you know we've been sitting in this fourth quintile for so long and the relative value of equities in comparison to bonds is has been incredibly compelling but we lost a little bit of that in that really strong rip into may now it came back with the sell-off that we that we've seen and investors took advantage Rupal, one of the things I took away from your book, the non-consensus investing book, was uh, you like to manage risk rather than return. You focus on not losing money as much or more than you do on making money. So in this world, what is the risk we need to avoid as an investor? Spot on, David. Uh, you know, to Gina's point, uh, I think a lot of investors are thinking about putting money to work in equities simply based on a relative valuation trade. I think they should look at absolute value intrinsic value, not relative. I think both 
equity and credit markets are quite overvalued. And frankly, instead of just looking at the earnings multiples on stocks, which is what most equity investors do, they should actually start paying attention to the debt multiple. Thanks to Rupal Bansali of Ariel Investments and Gina Martin-Adams from Bloomberg Intelligence. Coming up, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen had her eye on cryptocurrencies this week, even as Bitcoin dipped back below $30,000. We talk with economist Ken Rogoff of Harvard about the future of crypto and what regulators are likely to do about it. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. $30,000. That was the level in focus for Bitcoin this week. The cryptocurrency fell along with equities early in the week as concerns of the spread of the Delta variant rattled investors. Here's Fed Chair Jay Powell. We see Bitcoin going up in value and down in value. So it, it's a, you know, it's a, at, at times it's felt like a somewhat frothy market. Bitcoin is down about 50% from the April peak, a sign that the bubble may be deflating. Well, I think something in the neighborhood of uh, $15,000 is where we're going to end up. And, uh, you know, given all the uncertainty and the new competition from new coins and everything else, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, there's more downside to go. That's Scott Minard of Guggenheim. Crypto speculators are losing steam. Volumes for cryptocurrency spots and derivatives have slipped to their lowest since December. Here's J.P. Morgan's Mary Callahan Erdos. Digital currencies are new. And in general, digital currencies are being debated as to whether they're an asset class or not. But the volatility that you see in it today it is just has to play itself out over time. Elon Musk gave Bitcoin a temporary boost at the B-Word conference hosted this week by the Crypto Council for Innovation, saying he personally owns Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Dogecoin, while Tesla and SpaceX both own Bitcoin. Cryptocurrencies plunged in May after Musk said Tesla would stop accepting Bitcoin as a form of payment because of the energy used to mine Bitcoin. I would want to do a little bit more diligence um, to confirm uh, that the you could, could confirm that the percentage of renewable energy usage is most likely uh, sort of at or above fifty percent, um, and that there is that that, that there is a trend towards increasing that number. 
Um, and if so, then Tesla will resume Bitcoin, uh, accepting Bitcoin. Bitcoin's status as a store of value is one of the things that separates Bitcoin believers from skeptics. I don't completely buy the whole thing. You're essentially uh, saying that we're going to create a store of value and a medium of exchange around something that only exists uh, inside of a computer somewhere. It's not a physical asset. That's Steve Ratner of Willett Advisors. Treasury Secretary Yellen is among those who wants more scrutiny of cryptocurrencies. This week, she convened a meeting of regulators and policymakers to discuss the growth of stablecoins and the potential risks to consumers. I think cryptocurrencies, we don't really have an adequate framework to deal with the different issues that they um, pose from a regulatory perspective. One of those who's raised at least some questions about the future of cryptocurrencies and whether regulators in the long run can just let them run is Ken Rogoff. He's professor of public policy and of economics at Harvard University. So, Professor, thank you so much for being with us. As I say, I don't want to put words in your mouth. You've expressed some skepticism about where this all is going. One of the things we just heard there is there's just so much volatility involved. On the other hand, there's something called stablecoin. I guess stablecoin is tethered to specific fiat currencies to try to eliminate some of that volatility. Yeah, um, there are a lot of different kinds of stablecoins, but the basic idea is something that you can exchange for a dollar in fiat currency, just like you used to be able to exchange gold. Of course, then you're not speculating on it in the same way, but the idea is to try to give stablecoins some of the attractive pseudo-anonymous properties that Bitcoin has, which is, I think, a lot of the underlying appeal. Uh, at, the, at the same time, my understanding is theoretically, Stablecoin says whoever is issuing these has those dollars or yen or whatever reserved against those to tie to them. How do we make sure that that happens? And is that really what Janet Yellen is concerned about as she meets with regulators? Well, I, I don't think that's the only thing she's concerned about. I mean, I think regulators are very late to the game here in general and thinking about cryptocurrencies. Uh, they should have been thinking about it years ago. Uh, certainly the stable coins are not necessarily stable. That's a long history of fixed exchange rates. It's the same thing. Uh, you make money by using the money that you're supposedly holding in escrow and speculating. It doesn't always go well. It leaves you vulnerable to attack. I actually think in the very long run, if stable coins uh, persist, and, and I think the central banks are more sympathetic to them than anything else, they probably will need access to the central bank's balance sheet, just like banks do, to deal with runs. Uh, so uh, give us this perspective, the, the spectrum here, from Bitcoin to stablecoin to a central bank digital currency. Uh, is, that, is it inevitable we're heading towards central bank digital, digital currency? I think it's inevitable we're heading towards central bank digital currency, but it's not the same thing. And I've heard uh, Governor uh, Powell say, well, we want to take away you know, some of the appeal of Bitcoin. <laughs> no, you won't. Um, yes, for doing certain digital transactions, it may be more convenient <clears throat> than using MasterCard or, you know, other things, and we may be headed that way. But obviously, if it's issued by the central bank, it's very hard to have the same kind of pseudonymity that you can get with Bitcoin. So, I, I mean, I, I think they, I, I believe they need to sharply regulate the anonymous uh, cryptocurrencies. I know a lot of people in the cryptocurrency world uh, probably hate me for saying that, but I do think it's coming. And uh, we're probably headed towards some world in which at least under duress, 
the government can fairly easily find out about transactions, even if it's not monitoring them constantly. Well, I wonder about just the mechanics of that regulation, because I think a lot of transactions in Bitcoin or another cryptocurrency are done offshore. They're do, done through corporations that are not U.S. corporations, and they're done, as you say, pseudonymously. So how do you regulate that? Is it possible? Well, that's a good question. I've been thinking about it a lot for a long time. Uh, you know, you can't totally shut it down if North Korea and Russia and Iran decide they're going to use it. That provides a home for it. What you can do is make it much harder to use, say, to buy Tesla uh, in advanced countries, probably in China. Uh, that, that prevents it from having the same value. I've actually always been careful not to say Bitcoin is going to zero, like many people, Norio Rubini, for example, has, you know, emphatically, because I don't think it's, I don't think that's going to happen. But I think as the uh, guardrails tighten, uh, its appeal is going to go down. Maybe its value is going to go down. Who knows? Thanks to Ken Rogoff of Harvard. Coming up, we look at the Robinhood IPO with the former CEO of E-Trade, Carl Rossner. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Robinhood's Reddit army will soon be able to own a piece of the retail trading app, as the company plans to list on the NASDAQ under the ticker HOOD, and says its market cap may reach as high as $35 billion. Here's Robinhood CEO Vlad Tenef. I think you can look at uh, our, our vision uh, broadly and say that Right now, about half of U.S. households invest. We'd like to get that number up to 95 plus percent. Investing should be as ubiquitous as shopping online. It should just be something that people do. Robinhood will join the ranks of Coinbase, worth about $47 billion, and Charles Schwab, which bought competitor TD Ameritrade and has a market value of about $130 billion. The most important lesson is just we're seeing what technology is doing in terms of transforming the markets, access to information, um, the ability to trade, um, empowering smaller investors is something that is very real. That's Brady Dugan of Exos Financial. Robinhood boomed during the pandemic by providing easy access to retail investors, playing a starring role in the meme stock frenzy that took off in January. Here's Robinhood CEO Vlad Tenef being questioned by New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Robinhood is a for-profit business. Doesn't that mean that trading on Robinhood isn't actually free to begin with? I think we've proven that otherwise by making this the standard model by which brokerages operate now. Its monthly active users have more than doubled in the past year, with 17.7 million as of the first quarter, up from 8.6 million in the same period in 2020. The Robinhood IPO comes just a month after FINRA imposed a nearly $70 million fine on the company. That's a record for the watchdog. FINRA claims the trading app misled its customers about margin trading and had lapses in its oversight of technology and approvals for options traders. Take us through the phenomenon that is Robinhood and how it fits into the much larger picture of retail investing. Welcome now, Carl Rossner. He's former CEO of E-Trade. So, Carl, thank you so much for being with us. Really appreciate it. Uh, without regard to specifics of uh, Robinhood, because we don't know what's going to happen exactly. They're going to go public. We don't know the circumstances. Give us a sense of this Rob this uh, retail trade phenomenon. Is it here to stay? It's exploded, has it not? 
It, it has, and, and thanks for having me, David. I think the way that I look at it, I mean, Gina just said it on the last segment, the retail household you know, during the pandemic and otherwise was flush with cash. So what, what do you start to do? You say, okay, I'm, I'm going to get in on some of the stock trading and I'm going to understand how to do it. And Robinhood has created a phenomenal customer acquisition machine. Right? The way that they put the app together, how easy they make it to trade, how easy they make it to open an account, it's seamless. You know, it's very well done in terms of having that beginner trader really have the opportunity to go in and, and buy some shares. So, you know, there is some there are some different things that you know we should talk about in terms of the risks involved to the you know to that first time investor. But you know, I applaud them in terms of the customer acquisition and just the explosive growth that they've demonstrated over the past two years. So, Carl, I want to talk about the risks, but just before we get to that, to pick up on what you just said, how much of this is because we were trapped at home and a lot of people, particularly, frankly, maybe some younger people got some checks from the government and they wanted to put them somewhere? Yeah. Yep. So I think it's to be seen in terms of how many stick around and how many continue to do this post-pandemic. But I, I do believe that it, it's here to stay. And I, once you show individuals and you start to educate them on dealing with their finances and how simple it can be once you start with a bank account and budgeting and then understanding where stocks and bonds and, and other asset classes can fit as you continue to grow and, and become a more savvy investor. I think places like Robinhood have really opened doors for people. So I do expect a great deal of that to stick around. So Carl, give us a minute or two on the risks. And as we talk about the risks, one thing I'd like to focus on, is it a risk to the investor, which is serious, you want to take it about, or is there a larger risk to the system that goes beyond the individual investor who might lose their money? So, so, so I think there are both, actually. So, so just taking the, the individual investor first, which has always been you know, my focus, I think that first and foremost, there has to be the education. They have to understand that when you invest in stocks, when you invest in crypto or other asset classes, there's a complete risk of loss, right? Over the past couple of years and, and sort of the growth that we've seen, some of the meme stocks, the amount of money that can be made on trades, it's been rather fantastic upside for everyone involved. So you see a friend make some money, what are you gonna do? You take that stimulus check, you take the extra dollars, you open up a Robinhood account and you get on the train, right? And, and you continue to make money. But there is that downside risk and, and it's that downside that I think it's incumbent upon all of us work in financial services to really help that new retail investor understand what it is that you're doing, understand the options that they have to invest, to trade. Does that fit with their overall profile? Is that part of their budget, right? Can they actually afford to lose the money they just put in the stock market? We've all seen indications of those dollars you know, turning very quickly from a profit to a serious loss. And that can be very damaging if those are the only funds that you have in your bank account. So, so that, that's sort of the individual side, and I just hope that we continue as, as a group to focus on, on education more so than gamification. Thank you, Carl. That's former E-Trade CEO Carl Rossner. Coming up, does Netflix keep on going now that we're able to get out of our living rooms again? We talk with tech investor Roger McNamee about why he is still a believer. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. 
So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Netflix was out with its earnings this week and it underimpressed investors because the growth pattern didn't look quite as robust as it has in recent quarters. But it also raises questions about these big tech companies that have come from almost nowhere, but what their future is in terms of growth, but also, frankly, in terms of government regulation, potentially. We welcome now somebody who comes from this industry. He is Roger McNamee. He is a co-founder of Elevation Partners. And of course, he is the author of the famous book, Zucked, about his experience with Facebook. And yes, I think it's fair to say some questions he raises about Facebook. Thank you, Roger, very much for being with us. First, let's start with Netflix. As I understand it, you actually own some Netflix. You like the company. So give us your sense about where Netflix is and where it's going. So, David, I think the big issue for Netflix is that they won round one of the streaming wars. And that has forced every major media company into the marketplace. And as I think investors know well, Disney and Apple, HBO have come in with really strong offerings and Hulu and others are coming up as well. And so from Netflix's point of view, they've gone from having the space to themselves to having to compete against people who have real libraries, real content, and are generally speaking very well financed. And to me, the sense early this summer, you know, over the last couple months, that quarantine was coming to an end and that the pandemic was over meant people were going to watch a lot less TV than they were watching when they were quarantined at home. So to, it's not surprising that this quarter showed a lot lower growth in uh, new subscribers. But I'm afraid that the pandemic isn't over and that Netflix is still the strongest player in that marketplace. So I do expect the company to rebound from this. And I think the future is still bright, albeit with a lot more competition than it had in the past. Yeah, Roger, I must say, it certainly is the strongest in this space. The question is, can it maintain that or not? Because as you say, a lot of people have come in. Warren Buffett likes to talk about a moat around the business. Does it have a moat around the business? Or is that moat just spending money, hand over fist, and new content? Can it keep that up? Well, to be clear, that strategy has worked unbelievably well. And I don't know why it would stop. I think they have really large advantages there, you know, relative to Disney in particular. And actually, I think this is true of HBO as well. Netflix really does have a new programming advantage. And I think they understand their audience better. And they just have a lot more experience doing this. Now, at the same time, I think there are other markets in which they can expand. They're testing things around games. I think that, you know, conceptually, you could imagine them. Uh, eventually getting into other forms of streaming, you know, podcasting or, or music or whatever. And I don't think that they're locked into anything narrow. I think the brand is really good. I think that the, the team there has just demonstrated time and again 
that they have a much clearer understanding of what the audience needs than anyone else does. And I think that's still true. At the same time, we have to be cognizant of the fact that not everybody is going to wind up with an infinite number of streaming um, streaming subscriptions. So Netflix is going to have slower growth eventually. But I think it's going to remain an extraordinarily high profit margin business. And I think its position in the marketplace will remain solid, even with all the competition that's out there. Roger, you raised the issue. You mentioned gaming, for example. Does Netflix have to have, well, I'll call a second arrow in its quiver? I mean, certainly, you talk about Disney, whatever you think about strength or otherwise, they've got several lines of business that can really cross-subsidize and really support them through lean times. Does Netflix have to go the way, perhaps, for, uh, of, of Uber, when they said, let's be Uber Eats, not just Uber? Well, to be clear, I think Uber is a terrible business, and each time they're expanding, they're looking for a market that is going to have legs for a long period of time. I think Uber is, frankly, you know, the triumph of unlimited capital over a terrible business idea. The, the situation at Netflix is, couldn't be more different. It's a very substantial business. And I think the question is less, do they need the arrow in the quiver? Rather, are there arrows that they could put in their quiver if they want? And I think the answer to that's an emphatic yes. At the same time, again, I think investors need to be changing their expectations for these large tech companies. I don't think the kind of growth rates we've seen in recent years are going to be sustainable. And this isn't just about streaming. I think that's going to be true everywhere. Roger, we also have a government in Washington. It's paying a fair amount of attention to big tech companies, including places like Google and Facebook and Amazon. Uh, what kind of uh, risk or even opportunities could that pose? And let me raise one possibility with you uh, when it comes to Netflix. We have this executive order out that's really from the president saying he doesn't like mergers very much these days. Could that benefit Netflix? Because as the largest player, it may make it more difficult for some of the other players to get together to challenge it. So, David, I think that the situation with the government is really different today than it was even six months ago. So the Biden administration brought a, a professor from Columbia named Tim Wu into the Council of Economic Advisors. It then appointed Lena Khan, a tech reformer, to be the head of the Federal Trade Commission, and it announced it was going to appoint Jonathan Cantor to be the head of the antitrust division of the Justice Department. These are three extraordinary people, all serious tech reformers. And I think what investors need to understand is that antitrust is the most pro-growth form of government intervention on earth. Historically, it's been fantastic for investors. It does require changing your investment strategy, but what winds up happening afterwards is the target companies tend to grow more slowly, but they still grow, and then you get whole new industries that come out. The history of that in technology has been 100% of the time, antitrust has led to a new industry and great new wealth opportunities for investors. So we should be embracing it, not fighting it. The problem in tech, and this is really a huge issue for the internet platforms, but I think it's much broader than that. It affects artificial intelligence, it affects facial recognition, a lot of the new technologies we see out there, that there are serious consumer safety issues. And I think the industry is today where the chemicals industry was in the 50s, where uh, the garment industry was when it depended on child labor, you know, where the food and drug industries were before the creation of the FDA, when food and pharmaceuticals were unsafe, where the railroad industry was before the regulation of that industry. So I think this is, it's the right time. 
that this industry has undermined public health by amplifying disinformation about the pandemic. It has undermined democracy by being platforms for the creation of things like QAnon and also the insurrection. And these are really serious issues. And I think the thing that investors need to do is to recognize that there are at least three tangents that the Biden administration can do without any kind of new legislation. There is an antitrust case that the Attorney General of Texas has created against Google and Facebook for price fixing in the advertising market. That is a really serious issue. And if the federal government takes on that case, they can pursue it as a felony. And price fixing is the worst economic crime you can commit. And so the standard remedy is three plus years in prison for each count. And if I read the Texas case properly, there are two counts there affecting the executives at Google and Facebook. That's a huge deal. And investors haven't focused on that at all. Well, that's really, really good advice. Certain people should take it into account and decide making their investment decisions. Thank you so much to Roger McNamee. He is co-founder of Elevation Partners. Finally, one more thought. When is a delicacy just a pain in the neck? Pity the poor organizers of the Tokyo Olympics. When Tokyo won its bid back in 2013, there was no way for it to know that by 2020, it would be in the middle of a once-in-a-century pandemic. And let's be frank, as great an honor as it may be, it's not always been a great business proposition for those cities holding Olympics. But then the pandemic hit, and pretty much no one wanted to travel to Tokyo a year ago, or for that matter, anywhere else. So Tokyo 2020 had to be postponed a year, upping the cost to over $15 billion. And those, those are the official numbers. A government audit suggests it may be more like $25 billion. And it's not just the expenses. COVID is hitting the top line as well. A COVID surge in Japan means that there won't be anyone in the stands, leading to a loss of some $800 million in revenue. But despite it all, Tokyo 2020 has stayed the course even sticking to its brand name, although that means that Tokyo 2020 will actually be held in 2021. And the games have begun, complete with all those COVID tests and quarantine, and some athletes testing positive and having to drop out. And if all that weren't enough, now they have to contend with oysters. Yes, I said oysters. It turns out that the waterway where the canoeing and rowing events will take place may be infested with rogue oysters. According to the Washington Post, a trial run back in 2019 showed that the devices that they have to have in the water, that's to prevent waves from ruining the competition, well, all those devices were sinking. When divers went down to investigate, they found 13 metric tons, or over 31,000 pounds, of oysters had attached themselves to the equipment. They've now spent about $1.3 million, that's so far, to keep the equipment on top of the water rather than under it but there's no guarantee that it's all gonna work. It's not much of a consolation that this particular type of oyster, the magaki, or Pacific oyster, is considered by some to be among the best in the world to eat. They don't wanna eat them, they just wanna keep them out of the way. But then again, maybe they shouldn't be eating them anyway. July doesn't have an R in it, does it? That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston, this is Bloomberg. See you next week. 
The promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.